0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Could you uh, take your Bibles, please, turning them to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 through 28. Looking at the Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 1524. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for that. There are three Lenten Themes. They uh, speak of the person of Christ, uh, the work of Jesus, and uh, the cross of Jesus. Uh, With the phrases that we read in Matthew chapter 16, you could summarize those three themes with uh, these words So, who do you say that I am? That's asking about the person of Christ. Jesus saying, I must go to Jerusalem. Well, that's the work of Christ. And then The troublesome phrase for our ears uh, this evening, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we're going to look at each of those three themes uh, from the text. First one, Matthew chapter 16, beginning of verse 13. The person of Jesus. The text says, when Jesus came to this region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, so others say one of the prophets. But he says, who do you say that I am? And it's Simon Peter who answers, you are the Christ. That's just a Greek word for the Messiah or the chosen one, the one promised to come. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. If you're here this evening and the question is asked to you, who do you say that I am? Jesus asking it to you. And if you respond by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, whose doing was that? Did you Think it through. Did you intellectually look at all the options? Did your reason come to that conclusion? Well, it's very clear that that truth has not been revealed to you. You don't cling to it because of some human uh, reason or some intellectual capacity to be able to figure it out. It's a gift given to you by the Holy Spirit, a gift of revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Scripture says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by what? Except by the the Holy Spirit. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2 says, this conversation that we're having right now about the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, it is foolishness. I mean, you have that conversation probably a number of times in the workplace or with friends, and they ask you what you believe, and you go ahead and you tell them, and you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they look at you, and their eyes maybe are you know, a little glazed, and they don't quite understand. It's foolishness to them. It's clear to you, but it's foolishness to them. 1 Corinthians 2 says it's, it's foolishness to them because it hasn't been revealed to them by the, by the Spirit of God. And yet you believe it. We confess it. Romans chapter 10 says, well, this faith then comes through hearing. You know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? This faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. Our third article of the Creed in our, uh, our Christian faith speaks of that Holy Spirit and begins with this wonderful phrase, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. In other words, you're confessing, I believe that I cannot believe. That's what you're confessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. And if you believe that, the one that you should thank and praise, serve and obey, is this triune God. I believe that I cannot believe But the Holy Spirit calls me by this gospel. He enlightens me with these gifts. He allows me in faith and to say, who is Lord? Well, Jesus is Lord. That's the person of Christ. Now, very interesting in the text. It says there at the end of that, um, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then that little phrase there, I don't know if you ever caught it. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Isn't that strange? I mean, here he asks the question, who do you say that I am? And there's this response, a very clear response, prompted by the working of the Holy Spirit. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, he warns them not to tell anyone that he's the Christ. Why is that? Well, here's my suggestion. Whenever you come across a question like that in the scriptures, uh, my suggestion to you, my advice is keep reading. Keep reading. See what the context has to say. He warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So we keep reading. Verse 21. From that time on, it says Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. That he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. And what is Peter's response to this? The same one who said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is Peter's response? Never, Lord. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. To which Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. The very one who just proclaim the person of Christ you are the Christ the son of the living god what does not what what doesn't peter understand the work of christ the work of jesus that he must go to jerusalem that he must suffer that he must die and peter's brain just turns off at that point and he doesn't hear that on the third day he'll be raised again and so Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Maybe Jesus tells them not to tell anyone that he is the Christ because they may understand his person, but they do not understand his work. Maybe they understand the Christ as one who will come and remove the Roman rule or be the bread king, supply all their needs. Rule and reign, let one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left. And so these words that that Peter now hears, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and the third day be raised again. Peter says, that can't be your work. So he argues, argues with Christ. But what does Christ see? Christ sees behind Peter and he sees who's really at work, Satan himself. Now note there, there is a divine must in those verses. I must go to Jerusalem. A divine necessity. Now we don't quite understand all of this until after Pentecost. This is where Peter and his Pentecost sermon and the disciples gathered together. Especially in Acts chapter 4. And all of the scriptures are opened up to them. Specifically the Psalms. And they quote Psalm 2 and said... Well, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? And what conclusion did they come to? Well, they said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. Verse 28 in that section, if you read it sometime, says, They did... They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. There was no other option. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. And in this leaden journey, he, he invites us to follow him. And so, what is our response? Well, I mean, the king image in our mind is, yeah, let's go, let's have these positions of power, but all of a sudden the cross is being talked about, and perhaps do we argue with Christ as well, and say, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, who is working behind that? Well, it is our three arch enemies, it is the devil, it is the world, it is our own sinful flesh, specifically speaking in this, of course, is, get behind me, Satan. Now, what is the strategy, then, of these three enemies? Very consistent all throughout, all throughout the scriptures. That is, first of all, let's get everyone away from the cross. Some other way. Away from the cross. But what does Jesus say? I must go to Jerusalem. I must go to the cross. This will apply also to us. We will want to run away from the cross. We'll hear some hard words in a few moments. But everything within us is saying, no, away from the cross. And Jesus is saying, no, I must go to the cross. And if you follow me, you must what? Go to the cross. Jesus says, there's two things working here. Peter, you have in mind the things of men. Power and position and rule and reign. Authority. You have in mind the things of men but I have in mind the things of God. And thirdly, there is this idea that there's some idols working here. And Maybe in our culture we don't think of idols. Maybe in primitive cultures we say that's for them. But if we understand, I think, the Christian life with this this idea of idols, I think it becomes a little bit more clear. It is the idol of self versus the way and the will and the work of God in Christ. So there's a person of Christ. Who is he? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is his work? Must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. We pull back. Never, Lord. You will really pull back from this third one, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and... Follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his, his soul? Tough words, aren't they? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does Jesus mean by that? Jesus makes the bearing of the cross, a consequence, not a cause, a consequence of discipleship. No cross, no Christian. No cross, no Christian. Isn't that what the text says? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It is a consequence of following Christ. Martin Luther understood it when he wrote these words in the large catechism. He said it this way. If we would be Christians, therefore, we must surely expect and count on having the devil with all his angels and the world as our enemies. They will bring every possible misfortune and grief upon us. For where God's word is preached, accepted, or believed, and produces fruit, There the holy cross cannot be missing. And let no one think that he shall have peace. He must risk whatever he has upon earth, possessions, honor, house and estate, wife and children, body and life. Now this hurts our flesh and the old Adam, and the test is to be steadfast and to suffer with patience in whatever way we are assaulted and to let go whatever is taken from us. Here's my, just a little heads up on this. So when you talk about crosses and following Christ, uh, the thought is this, don't go looking for crosses. You know why? Because they will find you. Don't read these verses and say, oh, if I'm to be a follower of Christ, that means I must go and find a cross to bear. They will find You. They will find you because the cross that you are going to be asked to bear is going to be specifically made and tailored for you to go after your personal idols. It will be an idol slayer. This cross that will come to you that you will be asked to bear as a Christian will hunt down, it will find, it will bring out into the open whatever you're trusting in if it's not Christ and it will kill it, and it will slay it. Now, that might be suffering, but we shouldn't necessarily say that suffering is a cross. Do non-Christians suffer? Absolutely. But it's not a cross. Suffering may be a cross when it comes to you, and all of a sudden you are turned inward, and you get angry at God, or frustrated with Him, or you seek some way around it, impatient with it. Well, all of a sudden now that suffering reveals the idol that is there and this cross goes after it. It acts as an idol slayer. It hunts it down, the idol that you're holding on to. It finds it. It brings it out into the open. It kills it. It slays it. It takes the legs out from underneath it so you can't trust in it. Specifically tailored. Designed. You're known by God in... He knows the idols that you have and that I have. And perhaps they're not the same. This idea of idols is rooted all throughout the scriptures. And maybe we just don't hear it uh, in our daily life. Um, Again, throughout the world, they may have this idea of raising up an idol. And we think, well, maybe we don't have idols. But an idol is anything that your heart trusts in, that it holds on to. Psalm 81 says it this way. You shall have no foreign god among you. Shall, you shall not bow down to an alien god. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. What that's saying is, what you trust in is anything but God. God wants to bring that out, reveal it for what it is, slay it, And then show you how good and gracious and compassionate and kind He is. Open wide your mouth and fill it. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So, what are these idols? Well, let me give you three the idols of self. First of all, they're our own will and way, our own works and our own reason and strength. And these parallel the three persons of the Trinity, don't they? Our own will and way. The Father has His will. The Father, from eternity, understood that He would send His Son into the world and that these things had to happen. That's what the book of Acts said. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate planned and they schemed and they thought they were doing this all on their own, but behind it all was this plan, this divine must, this divine will of the Father, His will, His way. Now, don't you rub up against that all the time? When you want your will done? And your way done? And any other thoughts about that? You reject and you say, no, I know what's best. But that's an idol. And so the petition of the Lord's Prayer says, thy will, thy will be done. God breaks and hinders every evil counsel that will not allow us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, such as the will of the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. Sin against the Father is to challenge him on that and say, you don't know what you're doing. Second one is our own works. This is a sin against the Lord Jesus Christ himself where you take your works and you try and mix them together with his works, or you bypass his works and and you either fall into being a Pharisee, prideful in all that you have done, or you fall into despair, not trusting the works of Christ, saying, they couldn't possibly be for me. But do you trust in your works or do you trust in the works of Christ? Sometimes it's hard to distinguish the two. Trusting in the works of Christ is about letting go of everything that you bring to earn any type of relationship, to reconcile the relationship with God. But it's built so deeply within us, this idea of I must earn God's favor, I must merit in some way, then we go about it and we become a Pharisee, prideful, and we say, Wow, look at all the things I've done. Thank you that you've not made me like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I have. Or you're despairing in the corner with your head beat down and say, God could never forgive me for this sin. The works of Christ are never sufficient for this. The third one is our own reason and strength trying to figure it out. I mean, The song that we said is all of God's promises are yes and amen. Does that mean that you understand them? Does that mean that you feel it? Does that mean that you see it all? I mean, faith is going by not knowing, isn't it? It's unseen. And sometimes what you have to do is bring the idol of your own reason and strength and put it out there and say, I don't understand but God's word says. You acknowledge the feelings, you acknowledge the emotions, and you say, I, I just don't understand. And yet God's word, it says right here, God's word says, and you bend the knee, your reason and your strength bends the knee and is in submission to the word of God. It's his promise, it's his word. Now, here's the good news. Because that kind of sounds like bad news. But here's the good news. Is that we participate in the death of Jesus. But also what else do we get to participate in? In the life of Jesus. Cross-carrying is about not us doing it by ourselves. It is participating in the cross-carrying of Jesus, our brother. But also participating in his resurrection. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll hear this wonderful news of Jesus our Jesus our brother not only our intercessor our high priest but our brother who bears this cross with us Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this during the days of Jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. If you cry out in your life with loud sighs and cries and tears, who cries with you. Lord Jesus, your brother. Go a couple of chapters over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What does verse 2 say then? Let us fix our eyes on... Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what's the phrase? Endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You are asked to bear the cross. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? How do you consider him? Well, there's these three thoughts. Remember we said that you have the idol of self. It is against your will and your way. If you follow through Lent, what will you hear Jesus continually reference? I must go to Jerusalem. And You see it in the Passion story of Holy Week. He's in the garden wrestling. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but what? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Your will be done. For all the times that we fight against the way and the will of God, this brother of ours, Jesus, the perfect, righteous man, keeping the will of God, the way of God perfectly, cries out and says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And what does he do? He helps us then bear that cross, doesn't he? When you are saying, I don't understand this. I don't know why this is happening. There seems to be a different way. What is God doing? How can this all work together for good? There, your brother is saying, I said, Not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. And because I said that, you then could be sure that all things will work together for good. When you have this burden of your works and you're always wondering, Are they enough? Are they enough? Or, My sin is too much. My sin is too much. What words do you hear during Holy Week? It is, it's finished. That's one of those words where, again, you have to take your reason and your mind and submit it to the word of God and say, what does God's word say about my sin? Has it been paid for? Has it been exchanged? As far as the east is from the west, is it gone? And you simply say a little sentence to the evil one and say, well, the Lord Jesus said it is is finished. It's been paid for. The wages of sin is death, but here is death. Christ Jesus taking that sin upon himself. The third one, the struggle with our own reason and our own strength. When Jesus comes after his resurrection and he walks through the door and he sees his disciples, they're afraid. They're hiding. You know what Jesus says to them? It's interesting. He always seems to come to them at the right time and say these words. He says, peace. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. He shows them his hands and his sides and they're overjoyed when they see him. And then you know what he says? He says he breathes on them and he says, receive the, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what they speak of? They speak of these mysteries. They proclaim them. You killed the Christ, but God raised him from the dead. And the crowd's listening to this and they say, brothers, well, what should we do? And the disciples say, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today is my birthday. Well, I should clarify that. The important birthday, which is my baptismal birthday, February 14th. And my birthday, my baptismal birthday, the name of God is placed upon me. It's placed upon you. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Sins washed away. Called the child of God. Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? My parents say, We do. Every day is a celebration of your birthday, I think. You should think about it that way. It is a baptismal. Um, Dying, drowning of the old man and the new man coming forth. In our words of this evening, it's a cross carrying, slaying the idols. Participate in the death of Jesus, but also participate in his resurrection. Ash Wednesday brings us always back to the heart of our baptism. Which is Repentance. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Drowning and coming out of the water. The phrase of Ash Wednesday is, Receive the sign of the cross. Upon your forehead. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. This sign is marked upon you. You belong to Christ. And as a follower of Christ, you are then asked to carry the cross. But the cross is this beautiful gift that is given to you. And doesn't that sound strange? We're talking about a cross as a beautiful beautiful gift. Why is it a beautiful gift? Well, I think for three reasons. First of all, it is a, in our confession and in our Ash Wednesday Lent journey, it is a desire to stop following after the things of men and a prayer to start pursuing the things of God. I would pray that every one of you Where to evaluate your life and say, you know what? I've spent a lot of time chasing after the things of men. And look where it got me. And by the working of the Holy Spirit this evening to say, you know what? That new desire needs to be placed in my life. To stop following after the things of men. And to start pursuing something else. The things of God. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? A desire placed in you by the Holy Spirit, Satan put behind you, renounced the devil and all his works and all his ways, saying no to the things of men, and saying, well, what are the things of God? What does that look like? Teach me, Holy Spirit. Second of all, it's an invitation to die to those things that just bring more death. So, usually what I do is speaking to somebody who... uh, uh, investigating Christianity, I always kind of lead up so they really kind of know exactly what we're, the full picture, right? To say, you know, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To which the person, you know, is, is looking at you and saying, that, I mean, that just doesn't really sound too appealing. But here is the reality. When Jesus is asking you, To pick up the cross, he's asking you to die to those things that will only bring more death. And when you die to the things that only bring more death, what is yours? Life. Not just life here, but life eternal. The third one is this. It's a promise that when we participate in the death of Jesus, we also participate in the life of Jesus. For us to live as Christ, to die is, to die is gain. And to live that life of Jesus, um, to participate in that. In this life, but also in life eternal. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? What's your answer, by the way? Who do you say, when Jesus, if I'm asking on behalf of Jesus right now, who do you say that I am? What would your answer be? You are the... You're the Christ. Okay, easy one, right? What's my work? Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and the third day be raised again. You think, well, it's not quite what we had in mind following a king, but if you say so, all right, we'll change from the things of men to the things of God. The third one is difficult. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Die and deny himself, take up his cross, and... Follow me. But if we look at it correctly, through the eyes and the promises of Christ, our brother, who says, Father, not my will, but your will, it is finished. And if he says, receive the Holy Spirit, this, this symbol of death can be turned around in such a way, 180 degrees, so it becomes a beautiful gift that you rejoice in because what is removed from you then? All the idols that you have laid up for yourself. Specifically tailored for you, this cross comes slays the idol, and gives you life, life in Christ. There's a way that we do that, and that's continually through repentance. In baptism, it's drowning the old man, the new man comes forth. And the way to do that is um, through a psalm. And we'll use this as our Ash Wednesday psalm. I'd like for you to turn to it in your Bible. I'd like for you to read it with me as our corporate time of confession. It is David, and Nathan has just come to him and spoken to him words of law about his adultery with Bathsheba and the plotting and killing of her husband. And the law does its work. Nathan says, you're the man. And the words that we have recorded here are the words of David. And they're filled with remorse and repentance, that's the first part, but also faith and trust that sins can be forgiven, that a new heart can be given, that there can be life in the midst of of the death. So I'm going to ask that we would read this psalm together, verses 1 through 12. I'll then give you some quiet moments uh, to confess your sins, and then uh, you'll hear the words of forgiveness and we'll receive the Lord's Supper. Let's uh, begin reading verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. That the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you. For his sake forgives you all your sins. As a called servant of Christ by his authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.